are in 2 Corinthians. We finished chapters 5 and 6 and the first verse of chapter 7 last time. To remind you of context, since we'll be in that kind of stuff tonight, much like in the book of Galatians, Paul has planted a church in Corinth and has then gone off on his missionary journey and just continued on. And apparently somebody has come along behind him and called what he was teaching into question. So in the Galatian church, you all remember, the burning question was circumcision. The people who came along behind him said that in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised. So the letter of the Galatians dealt with that question. The question here seems to have been his apostleship. And as we're going to see when we get into chapter 7 and 8, one of the accusations seems to be that Paul is flying around on a silver-plated donkey with a Rolex because he will defend himself against an accusation of profiting from his ministry. So all of this letter, if you will, is in reaction to something uh, we don't know because we don't have the other half of the conversation. But it's calling Paul's credentials into question. So we finished off last time with believers being temples of the living God. And we got through verse 7-1, which is, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So really the first verse of 7 belongs with 6 because there he's talking about the fact that believers are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So now on to chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. A couple of things there. Somebody is spreading the rumor that Paul is not on the up and up. And this reads very much like the farewell of Moses and the farewell of Samuel in the Old Testament, where as Samuel and Moses each have a change of command, if you will, Moses gives command over to Joshua. Samuel gives command over to Saul. They both stand up and say, if anybody here can say that I ever even took a donkey from him, let him stand up. And everybody says, we do not so say, which is to say, we don't accuse you of anything. So Paul is making the same kind of a statement here. He didn't talk about donkeys, but it's the same kind of a statement that he did not come teaching them for purposes of fleecing them. Now he's going to talk about giving in a little bit here, but not to himself. Oh, one other thing. In all of this letter, Paul talks about we and you. Verse 4, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. So I and our talks about Paul and his traveling companions. You are the recipient of the letter. So again, 
the pronouns here are somewhat important. So verse 5. Even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Now he's going to go into a riff here about Titus and the Corinthian church. Again, sort of the theme of this letter is Paul is always in trouble. He causes riots, he gets stoned, he gets beaten, etc. So somebody has apparently said something to the effect of, if this is a man of God, how come he's always in trouble? That seems to be the nature of the accusation. So when he says, for when we came to, into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, for we were afflicted of every turn, fighting without and fear within. So Macedonia, I had problems. But Titus came to me, and Titus came to me from you. So Titus himself was a comfort to me, but the news that Titus brought from you was even more comforting. And then he'll go into a thing in the rest of the chapter where he is just ecstatic that Titus has brought a good report about the church and that the church has welcomed Titus as he had asked. So that's essentially the nature of this part of the chapter. Lots of flowery words, lots of stroking, if you will. That's basically the tenor of it. Let me zip through the paragraph now. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, for we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. He told us, which is Paul and his companions, about his experience with you, the Corinthian church. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So he sent 1 Corinthians to them, which is a starchy letter. And there's some fairly sarcastic passages in it. You've all had emails from somebody. You sort of got bristled, and when you talk to them face to face, you nope, I didn't even mean that. And so the idea that non-face-to-face communication is fraught with the possibility of misunderstanding. One of the things about people is we communicate with our whole body. So as you're talking to someone, they can very often get a sense whether what you're saying is angry, sarcastic, teasing. The point is, face to face, you communicate with your whole body. When you reduce it to writing, you have taken away most of the dimensions of communication, which is why there's a whole industry in emojis, so that you can add something to your conversation so that the chances of being misunderstood are reduced. So what Paul is saying is the first letter I sent you, which I'm assuming is 1 Corinthians, was really kind of starchy. And the other thing he's saying is sort of as soon as I hit send, 
I kind of regretted it. That's really what he was saying. I do not regret it, even though I did regret it. So the idea there is he hit send, which means that he put the letter on the boat or whatever method it was too late to retrieve, and then he started having second thoughts about it. He is happy to know that they did, in fact, take it the way he meant it, which is to say they repented of what they were doing. And so what he's then saying here is, even though I did grieve you with my last letter, it all came out right because the grieving led you to repentance, which is what I hoped would happen. So verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. So you remember the first Corinthians, since we've just been through that, you had things like some guy, I don't remember whether it was his father's wife that he was fooling around with, and you had people that were coming into the meal together only on Shabbat, and some people were getting drunk, other people had a full spread picnic where other people didn't have, you know, just lack of fellowship, all that kind of stuff. And what has come back to him is indignation from those who were not the actual target of the letter. In other words, he shot a letter out to the whole church, and there were people in the church that were not doing the things that were mentioned in the letter. And they are a bit upset that they got chewed out in sort of a general letter for stuff they weren't doing. And in the process, they appear to have cleaned up the church. And so he says that it all came out right, so we're okay. 13, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Verse 14, for whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything he said to you was true, also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. The sense of this, at least as I understand it, is first off, Titus came away from the church with a glowing report. They received me well, they're doing well, they love you, etc., etc. He comes up with this glowing report. However, it says you received him with fear and trembling, which tells me that they were expecting the messenger from Paul to be a messenger of rebuke. So the fact that it all came together and Titus has been able to report that he was uplifted by the spirit in that church. So Paul is refreshed that bragging to Titus about the church was not misplaced and bragging to the church about Titus was not misplaced. On to chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What he's saying is, the churches in Macedonia have given beyond what I expected of them. They're struggling, but they reached in deep and they came up better than I expected. You guys excel in everything. Therefore, I expect you to excel also in generosity. Now, what's going on here is important because remember he started off in chapter 7 by saying, I haven't defrauded anybody. So now he's turning around and asking them to put together an offering that will be delivered to the saints in Israel. And there is certainly always the suspicion when a preacher tries to raise money that he's got a boat payment due. So Paul has been very careful to say, I'm not taking anything of this. Now, the other place that you need to fetch up is in Galatians, in chapter 2. In Galatians 2, Paul is again defending his apostleship. Because remember the scenario in Galatians is you had Jews from Israel come through after him and say, yeah, this guy Paul didn't tell you the whole truth. You need to get circumcised. Which is, of course, the thrust of the letter to the Galatians. And so as he lays out his credentials, one of the things that he says is that he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. I went up because of a revelation sent before them that I must proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles. So he goes to the Council of Jerusalem, and he says, everybody there accepted me and accepted my apostleship. And the only thing that they said to me was, and now we're in uh, Galatians 2, in verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So he's gone to James and Cephas and John, and he's been to the Council of Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff, and nobody has questioned his credentials whatsoever. They received him in friendship, they received him as a peer, and the only thing that they said to him was remember the poor and Paul says that's what I was going to do anyway so now come back to Corinthians where we have the same situation as in Galatians so now what he's doing in Corinthians is he is doing the thing that the Jerusalem church asked him to remember which is take up a collection to remember the poor in Israel so 2 Corinthians 8 8 I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Does this sound like a, a Jewish mother? Guys in Macedonia really came up, so I'm wanting you to prove your love is genuine here by doing the same. I mean, that's sort of the kind of thing that's going on here. Verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Again, notice you, you, you. He's addressing the church. He doesn't say we or us. Verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. So what he's saying here is, I don't expect you to mortgage the house in order to come up with a gift for Jerusalem. I expect you to give out of what you have, not out of what you don't have. I don't expect you to go into debt to give. However, God has a scale of generosity that anybody can meet. And the scale is based on a percentage. The scale is not based on a net amount or a gross amount. It is based on a percentage. So 10% of whatever you have is sufficient for God. So what Paul is saying is, Whatever you have, that is the basis upon which you should be giving. Not on what you don't have, or not on the fact that somebody has asked for more, or not on the fact that you want to appear super pious and mortgage the farm, or any of those kinds of things. Simply give as a proportion of what you have, and that is acceptable to God. And then the other part of that is, God does not expect others routinely to live at your expense. So the idea that everybody from time to time needs help happens to all of us. And certainly when someone needs help, stepping up and giving them that help is entirely appropriate and pleasing to God. What is not appropriate and pleasing to God is for somebody to be a parasite. And that's what he's basically saying. His equity is you've got abundance right now, they have a lack. So give out of your abundance to help them in their lack. And understand that at some future time, you may have a lack and somebody will give to you out of their abundance. But it is not commanded that people get to be parasites. Because in other places, there were people sitting on their blessed assurance and not working. And said, huh, they won't work. They don't eat. Really simple. Not working is different from not having a job. Everybody from time to time is unemployed. And during those times you need help, and that's fine. But if somebody is a professional, non-employed person, that person should know a little hunger to get him motivated so he goes out and gets a job. In verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 8, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered litter had no lack, and that of course would to the manna in the wilderness. The reference there is from Exodus 16, 18, 
But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. How does that fit in context? If I were a preacher, I would say something to the effect that right now you have an abundance. The power to earn that abundance has been given to you by God. If you share that abundance, be assured that when the time comes, you will be taken care of and you will have no lack. So the idea is that when God dropped manna on Israel, not everybody gathered the same amount. But at the end of the day, when they all sat down to eat, the one who gathered little had enough to eat, and the one who gathered much had no surplus. Verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We will take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of man. I have no idea who this hotshot preacher is, but what he is being very careful to do here is he is saying, I am the administrator of the gift, I am not the recipient of the gift. You're not giving a gift to me, I am simply administering the gift, and I will take it with witnesses where it's designed to go. 22. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Messiah. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So what he's doing is he's sending committee and he's saying, give them your gift. And oh, by the way, I want you to do me proud when you give this gift. So that they see the gift you're giving and they say, wow, Paul was really right about these guys. They're really generous. That's sort of the gist of all of this. The other part of it is, of course, Paul is not taking any of this for himself, uh, which is also important. Let this be a lesson in fleecing your sheep. This is how it's done. Praise after praise after praise and saying just how generous I've told everybody you are and just how generous I know you're going to be and I am so proud of you and on and on and on. One of my very favorite cartoons, you know, these little church cartoons where you have the pastor and the uh, head of the stewardship committee and the pastor puts his hand on the guy's shoulder and says, go fleece my sheep. That's more charming than it sounds because a well-regulated flock should yield wool and milk and yogurt and all that kind of stuff. We think of fleecing someone as cheating them. That's the connotation we get when we say fleece somebody. But in the connotation here, what it says, my flock has got wool that they need to give. You need to go 
fleece the sheep, which is to take the fleece that they have produced. The, the reason the cartoon is so funny is because on one hand, fleecing somebody seems like cheating them, but on the other hand, that's in fact what sheep are for. Chapter 9, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Notice how he's playing the two churches against each other. Telling Macedonia that Achaia, the Corinthian church, they've been ready since last year. They've been collecting money up and, and getting ready to go. And encouraging Macedonia then to stretch a little bit in their giving because Achaia is being so generous. And of course he's saying the same thing to the Corinthians. Oh, you need to really step up here and be generous because the Macedonians who are really kind of hurting and kind of poor have given beyond what I expected. So it's typical fundraising stuff. So verse 4. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. Verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. All of this, by the way, is really good theology. We sort of snicker because we get it used on us all the time. As Tom said, you, you can always tell when, a, when there's a fundraiser. And so as you read this, you see echoes of every fundraiser you've ever been subjected to. And, but that notwithstanding, this is good theology. Because Yeshua himself says, whoever sows bountifully reaps bountifully. And one of the things that I have said in the past, probably worth repeating, is God has organized his universe according to the Torah. And what the Torah prescribes is sowing and reaping, which is to say what you sow, you also reap. It's also, if you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. It also talks about charity and giving. All those things are designed to make your life in this universe go better. What the world does is it comes back at you with cold arithmetic. If you give 10% of your wealth away, you only have 90% left and you're having enough trouble making it with 100%, what makes you think you're going to be able to get there on 90? That's what the world throws back at you. And what God says is, my universe is designed to reward those who give. Preacher I heard one time said it more succinctly and better than anybody I have ever heard it said, is you'll do better on 90% with God on your side than you will on 100% by yourself. 
And that is good theology. And so what Paul is saying here about sowing and reaping and God loving a cheerful giver, those are all things that God has built into his universe. Paul is simply repeating them. And the reason they need to be repeated so often is because we live in a world of cold arithmetic. And so there's always this temptation to figure out reasons why I have it, I'm going to keep it, or I'm going to use it for me. That's a really easy thing to sell. I've got it, I'm going to keep it, I'm going to use it for me. And so we have to keep being reminded that God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, there's a proverb. Basically, I have never seen a generous man's children begging for bread. Variation on that, that's the sense of it. So when you have someone who is generous and righteous, the proverb says, I've never seen his children beg for bread. And that's the kind of thing Paul is saying here. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Messiah and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. So what he's saying is, your generosity will move the recipients of that generosity to bless you in the sight of God. And so the idea of having people who are in need right now react to your helping them by calling for God's blessing on you is going to result in you being better off having given your gift than you would be if you kept it in the bank or under your mattress or wherever you keep such things. Let us shine.